11FS, this is InsureTech Insider News. Today we bring you Next Insurance partners with Amazon Business Prime, Social expands into home insurance, and a customer sues an InsureTech over a broken heart. All this and more on today's show. Hello and welcome to InsureTech Insider episode 89. I'm Sarah Kachansky. Today's show is a new show where we will be talking about the most interesting news stories in insurance and insurtech from the past few weeks. As always, I'm not alone, and today I'm joined by Nigel Walsh. How are you doing today, Nigel? I'm very well, thank you very much. Short week here in London, so I'm enjoying, it feels like it's a lot longer than it actually is, but a short week with Ben Holiday. Yes, we've just had the Easter, long Easter break, which makes no sense to anybody outside of the UK, I think, because the Americans go, what, you get two bank holidays next to each other, one's on a Monday, one's on a Friday? Why? And it moves every year? And we just have to go, something to do with the Catholic Church, but hey, we'll take it. You've just described my diary. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we are also joined by some excellent guests. So first up, we have Dylan Bourguignon, CEO of Social. How are you doing today, Dylan? Very well, thanks. It's great to have you back. Can you give us a quick reminder of what Social does? Although we are, we'll dig into uh, your latest news a little bit later on, but, but a quick overview would be perfect. We are on a mission to restore consumer trust in insurance. Uh, we have created a new model of insurance that is amazing if you need us and rewards if you don't. Amazing if you need us, that means it's reliable, transparent and incredibly fast claims. And rewards if you don't, you can get up to 80% money back every year if you and your friends don't claim. So we uh, launched in the UK with mobile phone insurance about four years ago and we've just launched Home Contents. Brilliant. So we will we will dive into that shortly. But first, I'm going to introduce my second guest today. That is Magnus Frank, CEO of Uptech. How are you doing today, Magnus? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for having me today. This is your first time joining us. So could you uh, give us a bit of an overview of what Uptech does, please? Sure. Uptech is a Swedish insurtech. Our core business is content automation for home and travel, uh, providing back-end automation to the insurance value chain from inventory, valuation, settlement and analytics. We have a strong European footprint with our full automated self-service since many years and are now excited to launch uh, our sustainable valuation as a response to the market uh, desire. Brilliant. Well, thank you for joining me. Thanks to all my guests for joining me. Uh, let's get on with the show. So the first story today is that Next Insurance has partnered with Amazon Business Prime. So the partnership will allow the pair to provide small businesses with affordable digital insurance options. Amazon's Business Prime members will be able to easily obtain a quote from Next Insurance for a variety of insurance policies, including general liability, professional liability, workers' compensation, commercial auto and tools and equipment insurance coverage. Uh, Next Insurance wants to give customers easy access to customizable insurance products based on the needs of their business. And then Amazon Business helps their customers reshape their procurement with cost and time savings. Next Insurance will offer Amazon Business Prime customers a 10% discount on both general liability and professional liability policies. So this one, certainly on the Amazon side, feels like it's been a long time coming. Amazon sort of dabbled with insurance for quite a while, but, but this is the, the latest development in that space. And, it, and to me, it makes, it makes sense to go with a partner like Next, which has the flexibility to, to enable their customers to get what they actually need as opposed to, you know, Amazon going with one of the bigger insurers where it may just have to deliver one policy that actually doesn't suit, you know, small businesses that, that tend to have very individual needs. What does anybody else think? Does the partnership surprise anybody? You know, what, what do you think it's a good idea, a bad idea? I'm slightly surprised they started with commercial as opposed to consumer, considering that their strong footprint is with consumer products. And I, I think, so this is, 
very much uh, of a good jour of the uh, of the present uh, kind of rhetoric around embedded insurance, um, which is nothing new. I mean, basically, it's just uh, distribution through retailers. I think it makes sense with regards to the supply chain, so actually it might help if it's embedded in supply chain to actually for the claims fulfillment. But you know, as as always in insurance, the proof is in the claims experience, and so in terms of the SLA and in terms of the contract that you're purchasing. You know, I, I don't know next well enough to understand you know what is the the performance on that, and I think that's one of the key things that Amazon will probably be very keen to make sure that. It is to their exacting standards of reliability for for customers. But I think it's uh, it's a new foray for them, so hopefully they won't be disappointed. Yeah, I wonder if they've gone with, with small businesses first, perhaps because small businesses maybe have a greater need, or it kind of fits in with that idea that actually we talked about on our previous episode, which was that small businesses are more likely to have a single point of contact for all their business needs. So we were talking actually about accounting platforms previously, but, but I suppose Amazon could go the same way, particularly given it offers them, you know, that they, they can do their store management, they can sell through it, they can get loans through it. So this is another thing. I wonder if perhaps that's the reason they've gone with small businesses first, because they maybe have a a more captive audience. Nigel, you wanted to jump in there. Yeah. Or you were just waving at me. I, I, a, I was waving at you. Hi, I missed you all week. <laughs> I have a little more lignac, if you're using French words, but Dylan, in my belly. I'm a little more fire in my belly on this one. I love this. I think Sarah and I have discussed next in the past and how exciting and advanced they are. Uh, I can't remember who it was or, or what episode, but I'm excited about this one. I'm excited by it because fundamentally the number one segment that I've been asked to look at over the last couple of years, predominantly in my previous role, was SME. It feels like the forgotten middle between commodity home and motor and everyone's in that space and it's a, it's a race to zero on price, complex commercial and the little guys in the middle, and I say little but because they can be, you know, one man in a van all the way through to 250 people, whatever else it might be, I just feel that that is a forgotten group where you've got folks and we've had Simply Business on the show before and a bunch of others that have done an amazing job going after that market. I, I genuinely think world over, it's probably one of the most or hottest opportunity areas for better digital engagement, better products, better claim experiences, better understanding of what we do. And if you partner that with someone that owns distribution, I think you're into a real win. So I'm excited by these two people coming together, but more excited by the fact that someone's going to go after SME, SMB at scale. Magnus, did you have any any thoughts on this? Perhaps you'd like to use some Swedish words, given we're, <laughs> <laughs> we're showing off our geographical credentials today. Yeah, thank you. No, but I, I think also to echo what you said before, I, I, I see the, seen this for many years in Europe that, as you say, Nigel, this has been an untapped uh, opportunity, uh, a little bit neglected. So I think there's a great opportunity. At the same time, uh, as Dylan says, a little bit uh, surprised that they go this way, but uh, putting them together, for sure, there's an opportunity here. We've been hearing it for years uh, all through continental Europe. Europe, uh, that they have felt neglected uh, in this space, as you say, Nigel. So uh, for sure, it's an opportunity. I think to Dylan's point as well, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens when you claim. Because if you if you ever tried to get in touch with Amazon, <laughs> it's um you know as a, as a customer, it's 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 a 
very, very complicated process because they really, really don't want to talk to you. Whereas obviously when you're making a claim, if, if they don't get that process right, that's going to be hugely negative impact. And, you know, it can, can Amazon, with its actually, to be honest with you, quite clunky website and user interface, develop along with Next? Because I know Next can do it, but can Amazon do its end of the bargain and develop a claims process that is that is smooth and easy for, for customers to use? Um, and, and again, that thing, you know, do customers know whether they're buying from Amazon or Next? If they have a complaint or a question, do they go to Amazon first or is it a next customer point? All of that is so important when you're working in these in these partnerships. It, it can be done, but I, I, I question almost Amazon's expertise in that rather than next, given what I know from their retail customer experience, if that makes sense. Well, I would expect the claims process to be managed by next. And then it's the delivery of the, uh, of the item. So for example, entire sense for an SME who basically will be uh, you know, I've got a, a shared office space, I've got a bunch of laptops, um, and, you know, you buy them off Amazon, well, you might as well buy the insurance with uh, with it, which goes with it. Um, and then if something does happen to your laptop, uh, it would make sense that then Amazon would then um, dispatch the new one to you. Uh, and actually, I think it would, it, it would be very beneficial um, in terms of the customer experience and expectation uh, that we have nowadays, because we, you know, we're used to having stuff delivered the next day. So as long as the next um, claims process is a, a swift one, then actually the fulfillment should be quick too, mm. uh, which sh- should be a kind of a win-win solution for the um, for the SME. And I think that's kind of where it's uh, it could be a really. That's why I think is it's really. Uh, interesting potential to be explored. I think as with so many things, the idea sounds really good. It's going to be the execution that everybody's going to keep an eye on for this one. Um, and obviously, you know, if it goes well, Next is well positioned to, to help Amazon with a with a retail customer proposition as well. There's no reason why they can't do that. Um, all right, let's move on to our next story. And that's that, as mentioned earlier, SoSure has expanded into home insurance. Um, so this comes after the company saw the pandemic forcing people to spend far more time at home. We have seen a lot more DIY home improvement programs, particularly if you're in my house. Um, and also a lot of people, you know, getting bored at home, buying new gadgets for, for, you know, keeping themselves entertained, but also needing to work from home. So all of a sudden they need stuff that they hadn't needed previously. Um, so SoSure enables users to build their inventory uh, by scanning the items they'd like to add or getting covered uh, using their phone. Um, and the social insurance model means customers can get a um, percentage of their money back each year uh, if no one claims. Um, if, if they do have to claim, then they can expect most claims to be resolved within 72 hours um, and they can connect with their friends and family through the app. Um, so Dylan, I'm just I'm going to go straight to you, obviously, on this one. Um, have I missed anything? Is it, would you like to give us some more detail, perhaps? Yeah, I think... Um... We've effectively just been uh, listening to our customers for the last four years, and uh, they're the ones who have been asking us to be uh, launching this. The, the problems that we're um, solving are effectively the same that we were in mobile phone insurance, which is uh, fundamentally, you know, the Gen Z millennials who are our core customer base, they they do have items of value um, that they care about, whether it's your pair's super cool sneakers or handbag or just a laptop and more. And the issue that has taken place in the insurance industry is that for it's inappropriate products have been sold to them um, to date, where it's basically just a buildings con- building, uh, kind of a uh, home buildings policy, taking out the buildings element to it and say, hey, here's your, here's your content. And it's not really been thought through from start to finish. You know, whether the fact that you have your premium goes up every year because you're a loyal customer 
well, we don't do that. Whether it's, you know, you, you decide that you're going to be insuring for £15,000 of assets, and then suddenly the insurer has decided to um, apply all sorts of kind of uh, cool math to actually say to you that, no, actually, um, your assets were only worth 10000 but they'd be very happy to take the premium for, for the £15,000 worth of assets. And then that uh, dreaded claim experience, which, you know, takes days, if not weeks or months to finally get you back on your feet uh, at a time when you need it most. So really addressing all of those elements, and that includes this kind of uh, inventory core thing through the app. But it also means that, we you know, through our, our win-win insurance, so that's part of the amazing experience if you need us, but there's also the element of rewards if you don't. And so with um, our, our home contents policy, you can get up to 40% money back every year if you and your friends don't claim. And so bearing in mind that uh, 95% of us um, don't claim, this should be a kind of a, uh, at last you're getting value for money. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it chimes with a story we're going to talk about a little bit later. But, you know, the one that, that sprang to mind or was always most obvious, I think, to a lot of people was was cars, was motor insurance. You know, I'm not using my car. I'm not going anywhere. So why am I paying you the premium for the two journeys I do make? Uh, you know, this is a very similar situation. I'm in my house all the time. So I wonder, I actually wonder, I don't know, sorry if you mentioned it already, but I don't know if there have been more claims or fewer claims since lots of people have been at home. Because on the one hand, you're less likely to have a break-in. But on the other hand, if you're at home all the time, are things more likely? to go wrong? Are some of those DIY projects causing all sorts of you know, unexpected um, catastrophes? I don't know. Do you happen to know anything about that, Dylan? So we've only just launched. I can't tell you about my, my historical data, but maybe Nigel's got more insights on that mm. in the last year. Yeah, yeah, we, we have some kind of just uh, interesting observation that if we see kind of uh, in the Scandinavian market, the, the bikes uh, events, of course, going down dramatically. Uh, but on the other hand, new events occur when people spend more time on new places around their boats and their hobbies. So kind of a switch of life pattern there, uh, but definitely going down in frequency uh, the last year in Scandinavia, at least. Mm, no, that's interesting. I suppose you're, you're more likely to be at home, so you're less likely to have a break in and you're more likely to spot if you've got a leak or, you know, I don't know what people came claim for most commonly on home contents, but you know I can imagine leaks being quite high up the up the list. Uh, I was just saying, my uh, my colleague Mark Patterson from Deloitte did a load of research on this just after the pandemic, and I was putting out updates every two weeks about the types of claims. And things like escape of water was going down because you were there to spot it, so you actually could stop the significant damage. And of course, they're the biggest claims you get inside a house. Things like fire from memory were going up, but he was using public data from fire brigade, police, and all that sort of good stuff. So uh, I think fire was going up because we're all at home, uh, cooking more, more things plugged in. So all of a sudden you get a flat with 700 things plugged in from laptops and phone chargers and all that sort of stuff. So with sockets overloading and, and a whole host of things. We've seen on the news in the UK, at least, Magnus, you'll have seen um, with the increase in pet ownership, there's like been 3.2 million pets, new pets in the lockdown. There's now an increase in number of pets being stolen. So there's been a whole change in dynamics, Sarah, to your point. I was just laughing at the idea of, I don't think pets are covered under contents, are they? If somebody nits your cat. But I do, I do know that there is more cat insurance sold in the last year in the UK than ever before. A lot of people have got cats, apparently. 
Um, no, it is. It is interesting. Um, I, I think. Do we think that this is something that will encourage greater take up of home insurance generally? Because it is um, particularly so. What we would sort of renters' insurance or the sort of insurance that you're offering, Dylan, is, is well suited to, to, to renters, right? It's just the stuff inside the flat. It's not the flat itself. Do you do you think that this will appeal to to those younger audiences or perhaps those audiences who have previously been um, undercovered? And we we know that that's a big problem in content insurance. Yeah. Well, that's the feedback we're getting. So yes. And it's also because they don't really trust financial services and the institutions. And so this is why, uh, partly why they kind of don't want gone down the route of getting insured and the inadequacy of the experience and thing else. But it, I think the key here is that what we've done is not just reskin an old cat. Stick with the cats. With, uh, <laughs> Just making making it kind of look pretty on the outside, but actually, it's a, again, it's a redesign of the entire customer experience from start to finish. So it's a, the, the entire model is redesigned to be delivering on the value that people want to be purchasing. Yeah, I've got a question for you actually, and, and um, it's more on the forty percent. I think it's a really good idea. We've seen other insure techs come back with ways of giving you money back or not charging you the full amount if you don't claim. I think it's a really good incentive. People are obviously very price sensitive, why is it a 40% give back as opposed to 40% cheaper at the outset? Because it's uh, through our social insurance model, which is the way it works is you buy a policy, you're covered. We've already starting off with a price which is super competitive. So I actually switched anecdotal, but I switched my from my Aviva product to socials and I saved £100. So that's a 50% reduction in cost. So we're competitive up front. Um, so it's not that you're paying a higher price to then get it kind of knocked down to what everybody else is charging. It's not the case. It's a very competitive. In mobile phone insurance, for example, we're up to 40% cheaper than our competition. So it's, a, uh, it's very competitively priced up front. And then you've got a free option to connect to your friends. So every time you connect to someone, you get money added to your reward pot. And the more you connect, the more's in your reward pot. And at the end of the year, if you and your friends who you're connected to have not claimed, then the money in your ward pot's paid out to you. It's bringing insurance back to its roots, but it's in a way that is on a, um, it's a network model as opposed to a group model. So you, you know and identify the people that you're uh, sharing the upside with. And so it means that everyone is behaving in a more responsible manner. And that is why it's a win-win because the people who are careful just get money back. Yeah, I mean, I was just going to say that that's the point of the social model is that you need everybody to, to think there's something in it for them to, to change their behavior. Um, Magnus, I'm going to give you the final word on this one before we head to the break. Yeah, first of all, congrats, Dylan and the team, to a great uh, offering. Uh, this is very close to the uptake heart, the DNA of uptake. So I, I, we also have a passion for content as, as you do, Dylan. And I just kind of touch upon what we see in the market also, which you were uh, on that, that kind of the millennials, they have so different uh, ways of doing relationships, both to the staff, to the institutions, to the insurers, to the definition of a relationship, which you are spot on, Dylan, with your offering. So I think it's a lot of also kind of defining the dimensions of the relationships for, with the digital consumer going forward, which you are spot on, Dylan. Thank you. Okay, well, we'll, um, we'll have you back in a bit, Dylan, to tell us how it's going. But for now, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back very soon. Trust in financial services has been increasing. 
But with trust in technology companies decreasing and the pandemic accelerating the shift to digital financial services, it's more important than ever to actively build and maintain trust. In association with MyTech, we've launched a report that explores the current trust issues facing financial services brands and how they can be overcome. Head to bit.ly forward slash digital trust report 2021 to download it now. Okay, welcome back, everybody. And now over to Nigel. What have you got for us? Well, I've got a terrible headline from Hannah. No, I'm kidding. Can insurtechs keep on rolling, Hannah? Wah, 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 wah. Uh, this is an article from Insurance Business Magazine. and It's all about Honcho and Admiral joined forces for a multi-car proposition. Now, summary of this is uh, motor insurance industry experts expect that pay-per-mile pricing to be standard within four years, which I could not be more excited by. Research from Bybits finds that the motor insurance industry is heading towards a usage-based pricing model, with 91% of insurers regarding it as a positive change for the industry. More than two-thirds predict that pay-per-mile will become standard within the next four years, as I've mentioned. The report further showed that 97% of motor insurers have had customers call for fairer pricing based on usage of mileage during the lockdown, something that we're all familiar with, given that most of our vehicles have sat on the driveway or on the street and not moved very far at all. Meanwhile, Honcho and Admiral have partnered to bring Admiral's multi-car insurance product to Honcho's platform. Currently, a digital journey for multi-car insurance products is not available within the context of an aggregator platform, typically found here in the UK. However, Admiral is now amongst over 40 insurance providers present in Honcho's car and van insurance marketplace, and Honcho's customers will therefore be able to purchase multi-car cover. I say hurrah. What do we say, folks? What do we think? Let's start with the pay-per-mile piece, I think, because that's been quite a topical comment. I think we've seen um, folks all over the world, led by the United States, I think there's two carriers in the UK that have followed suit, giving people money back, back to Dylan's previous points, for non-usage of their policy. So do we think this is good, bad, indifferent? Dylan, you were, you were signalling with a hand gesture then. Yeah, when you read out that uh, the insurers are very happy about this, I'm not really surprised. In, in concept, I think it's wonderful. My concern is that in practice, the pricing per mile that is being applied is one which is exorbitantly expensive. So when you look at the some of the, I'm not going to name which one, but the, um, when you look at the existing players that are providing you on a per usage basis, it's four times more expensive than the average usage of an average person in the UK. So if, you, if you're using your car less than a quarter than what the average user uses their car for, then this is wonderful. They're great products. But if you're anything above, you're basically are bleeding money compared to buying a, a kind of a, an annual policy, which is why kind of when you said uh, insurers are delighted, I am, I, of course they're delighted because that's basically an opportunity to make a more margin without necessarily the consumer understanding. It's a bit like those, um, you know, when those Mars bars, they kind of uh, chop, chop them in two and then uh, sell you that it's only, uh, it's only 30p, but yeah, but you're only getting about half of what you used to be getting. <laughs> <laughs> 
I, I completely agree, Dylan, because I the products, great products from, from people like Cover, well, that you, you know they're going to be more expensive if you were to insure your car using Cover every single day of the year, but you don't. You only insure your car with them for a weekend or a week, and, and therefore it is a lot cheaper and it makes a lot of sense and, and, and for, for that very infrequent usage. But, um, you know, I completely agree that if, if, if we're paying by, by the mile, but it's an annual policy, I really want to see that properly reflected. I mean, I guess the first step is, well, it's cheaper than my current annual policy at the moment. I don't have a choice. But an awful lot of um, providers now do provide what they call flexible policies, which allow you to sort of turn them off or turn them on and have a monthly rolling contract. That's great if I want flexibility, but but I really want to see the, the price reflected in, in my actual usage. I mean, I don't own a car. We have a higher car when we need it, and, and we're not a multi-car household. But I think particularly if you're going for multi-car products, you really should be seeing significant significant savings. And it shouldn't just be a case of, oh, well, it's cheaper than the annual policy, so that's a step forward. That's not enough of a step forward as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I think in general, I think this, of course, is, there's an opportunity here. But uh, the key, I think, as you say, there is uh, all the pay-per-use offerings. Transparency is super important because, of course, you lower the barrier to entry, but also uh, the experience must be met there. So if you feel that you're bleeding money, then you will bump uh, off quite soon. So I think the lower barrier is fine, but you need to be, know what you sign up for. Yeah, I think they're all very fair points, actually. I hadn't really considered I, I had considered the flexibility of someone who's had a car sitting on the driveway that's actually got to the stage the battery's gone flat because I've just not used it whatsoever. Um, being a positive thing, and if I could drop down, and I think it's by miles, do this, or cover, do this, where you've got a baseline that says, here's the limit that you've got. And I, you know, I think Volvo was one of the companies that talked about your insurance should be like your mobile phone or your car should be like your mobile phone where you get a bundle of minutes included and anything above and beyond that you then pay a a per minute or per call or whatever it might be so i think this feels like it's moving towards the hybrid of how do we get that balance correct between the paper mile the bundling and something that feels fairer and i think you know dylan to your point about averages I wonder what the average consumer is going to look like post-pandemic, especially if all the commentary around return to work. I mean, Sarah's talked a lot about only getting back to the office when we need to, as opposed to every single day or whatever else, or at certain times. I think lots of people are going to be in this space. So maybe the annual policy or the average consumer will change, or there'll be different segments that require a different product. So I think it's a step in the right direction, and maybe over time it will reshape or balance itself out for these new habits that we now come out of the world post-pandemic. The second part of the story, of course, is the multi-car. So is that something that we're seeing in many places? Is there, uh, I wonder if the mileage allowances across the, the car, one car or two cars or, or three cars, I don't see it yet as an individual, but I guess when my kids are old enough and we've got multiple cars on the driveway, if we ever get to that stage, I can see that being a convenience factor rather than having to go through it one, two, three or four times. Yeah, I mean, Admiral have done multi-car policies for quite a while. That certainly where you do get bundles for for you know adding each extra car. I can't think of the pricing off the top of my head, but I know that that's that's something that they have done. It's you know it's obviously an incentive if you've got a lot of households do have two cars or, or, or three cars or even more that they've done that. I haven't seen anything particularly innovative beyond the idea of you know the, the more the more you insure, the less you pay kind of thing, which is a, a fairly a fairly classic pricing model. I mean, I think there's room for a lot more innovation. 
conversation as well. I, I was just thinking as you said that, you know, I, I have hired a car for, 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 I've got a year long lease on the car I've got at the moment, but I only use it once every sort of three weeks to maybe go to the supermarket and do a big shop. And then once a month to drive a really long way to, to go and to go and check on my mum. And the, the rest of the time it's sitting there not doing anything, but I don't have the option to take the insurance off it because I don't have off-road parking. Now I am not the only person in the world who has a situation like that. Yeah. So could somebody, you know, can somebody design a product for me? So if I had to drive, I could just only insure it for the for the long drives I need it for. But like many people, I I don't have off-road parking because that's not an option a lot of people who live in built-up areas. So um, I guess what I'm saying is I think it's a good idea, but I'd like to see more. I'm not, I, th- I think they could do more here. I'd like to see a little bit more creativity is probably what I'm saying, or, or innovation. And, and to Dylan's point, that reflects how people actually use their homes and, the, and to Magnus's point, what is their, their lifestyle actually like now? Um, what do they actually need? And I, I don't know what it is in Sweden, but I suspect car usage has dropped significantly there as well i mean magnus obviously you could talk to that yeah yeah for sure and just kind of uh, another idea that kind of pops into to our mind when we see this is a little bit of kind of looking ahead with a with the increasing sharing economy uh, with a multi-utilization i think this model is is there f- to stay i don't know in which way or form but for sure with this multi-purpose utilization that the younger generations are much more proactive for. Uh, That's also an opportunity, I think, going forward, not uh, directly related to car, but I think there's something there under the surface. I think I think you're absolutely right. I think it could be related to car as well, because if I had a group of friends, if there were four of us who all use a car in the same way I do, it'd make a hell of a lot more sense if we bought one car between the four of us and agreed in advance who was having it which weekend. I think we're getting to that sort of stage, aren't we? I think uh, I remember one of the stats being something like a car is idle for 96% of its life, which is quite a scary statistic when you spent all that money either on the lease or on the physical um, acquisition of the actual vehicle. The last point I think really here is that the aggregator sites as they currently stand, including probably Honcho, don't yet have the infrastructure for multi-car. And I find that quite interesting. And never mind multi-car, look at multi-product where you've got home, motor and others all coming together. I think the convenience factor of that is really exciting. And I wonder if that's a, a, it truly feels like a competitive differentiator for someone like Honcho to have that on the platform ahead of the traditional aggregators as well. So. Let's let's see where that goes. Let's see how the world emerges post-pandemic over the next couple of months. But exciting times and, and uh, great news on the partnership in my mind. But I'd say also in terms of a longer term, I mean, if we're looking at car, I mean, all the discussions we've been having about driverless cars and how that will be changing our our usage, our ownership of cars going forward. Are we just kind of trying to um, move around deck chairs on the Titanic of the motor insurance segment here? Um, possibly, um, if uh, if people are going to be, um, if we end, do end up with driverless cars and therefore and people don't end up owning them anymore. So that's kind of a more metaphysical, kind of a longer term view we could be considering too. I, you've almost got into the point of cultural differences between countries. And if I look at the UK, we are passionate about owning our own cars and owning our own homes, which of course throughout Europe is a almost an alien culture. Why would we actually want to spend all that money or, or whatever else? We'll happily just rent or whatever it may be. So um, you, you're jumping into a whole cultural thing. Whilst we haven't got time to do that today, we are going to jump into the Suez Canal. So... <laughs> now you don't get to comment on Hannah's headlines if you're going to say things like that, Nigel. Moving on, I will take us to our next story, which is one that's been all over the news, and that is the Suez Canal blockage creates expensive insurance liability. 
This is from the Insurance Marine News, no surprise. Uh, and insurance liability is increasing as a Suez Canal blockage continues. Um, so far, there have been no claims or lawsuits yet. The container ship that ran aground that blocked the Suez Canal for nearly a week has been removed, as we've all seen, which is great news. But due to the canal blocking, a lot of ships faced delay. Before the boat was removed, the amount of delayed boats increased by more than 50 per day. And I did read reports of it costing multiple hundreds of millions per hour. Due to this, the owner, a Japan-based Shoei Kisen, KK, apologies I've not pronounced that correctly, and the insurers of the blocking boat, Ever Given, could face claims into millions of dollars from the Suez Canal Authority and other ships. By the 30th of March, Shoei Kisen said that they had yet to receive any claims or lawsuits. The ship's hull is insured by Mitsumi Sumitomo Insurance, which is under MSNAD Insurance Group Holdings, Tokyo Marine and Nichini Fire Insurance Co. The Suez Canal blockage roughly cost 12% of global trade and was holding up trade valued at over $9 billion per day, according to data from the Lloyds list. This is equivalent to $400 million worth of trade per hour, or $6.7 million per minute. Yikes. Where do we even start with this, folks? I think they need to build another canal. <laughs> Which might be cheaper. I, I know this. I know this has been suggested before. I'm actually genuinely wondering if they could get some cooperation on board and, and get a second canal in place. It just feels like it would be cheaper than having to deal with this every time a boat gets stuck. And I'm fairly sure that there are at least three other significant incidences of boats being stuck in the Suez Canal. Well, it's funny you say that. I don't remember a single one. So is, has there genuinely been other incidences, incidences where the Suez Canal has been blocked for so long? I believe so. Um, let me just double check. Because I think there was one, yeah, there was one, a huge one in 1967. And then I can't remember, there was one sometime in the middle. Go to somebody else and I'll find the data for you. Yeah, fair. Well, D Dylan, where, where, where's, where do you stand on, on Suez Canal and, and relation back to insurance? Funny enough, I was uh, having a chat with a, uh, uh, a marine underwriter and uh, his comment was, this is going to be a feast for lawyers. Because you've got the you've got you know a whole bunch of business interruption. There's uh, goods. Then there's basically who takes what risk. Who's then kind of responsible for what, and then whose layers of risks are then exposed. And so I think the biggest winners here are definitely going to be the lawyers. Sadly, as in just solving the issue. I mean, it's interesting if you look at the uh, the charterer. They insist there to be no blackout, but gusting winds of 30 knots added to poor visibility due to a dust storm. They also said that the vessel was chartered and therefore the responsibility for any expense incurred in the recovery, third party liability and costs would fall on the owners. Which makes it a really interesting conversation going forward, back to your point. I mean, it was likely to be insured for hull and machinery damage to the tune of 100 to 140 million. Um, with the ship being insured by H&M in the Japanese market, according to industry sources. So it does now start to get into the detail of who's responsible, where does the cost, if any, lay, and then how do we go about getting our claim back, not just for this particular vessel, but for the 300 that were held up for weeks on, or you know, potentially weeks on end as, as a net result. Exactly. Magnus? 
Yeah, I mean, this is a bit way out of my field, but of course, the reflection I do is that, as you say, it's really demonstrate this kind of, uh, the event is quite, quite tangible, everybody can relate to it, but again, it demonstrates really the, the complex risk management in, in the global supply chain that we take for granted in, in the everyday life. And for sure, the domino effects, as you say, Dylan, will be kind, there will be winners in that process, of course, but uh, I think it's just kind of reality coming up to, to par now with the, with the complexity we have. I think just to give you the details, um, obviously, it was closed in 1967. There was there was the war, but um, once they you know signed an agreement, whatever it was, eight years later, um, the canal was just they'd signed the agreement, but the, the canal was just blocked for, by debris for a really long time because it hadn't been used. And then in 2004, an oil tanker got stuck apparently um, and caused similar sorts of issues. So um, I, I think that I know this isn't necessarily about insurance, but I think if I was in insurance in any of these areas, I might be thinking genuinely about well, this is a single point of failure. That's that's a huge issue what do we do to to relieve this single point of failure so maybe we don't need nations getting together to build another canal maybe insurers can get together and build another canal mitigate risk at the outset i like it well exactly i mean i'm aware that it's not as easy as that but it's an idea it's it's really interesting i mean rahul khana from agcs alliance global corporate specialty said that could also be claimed for damage to the canal itself quite an interesting uh, point in comment and then david smith from mcgillan partners said that all roads lead back to the vessel um, so I think this is, to, to Dylan's point, this is going to go on for quite some time, um, working out where responsibility sits and lays. Sarah, I think your idea is really interesting. I hadn't even considered building another one. The one thing I, w- I will say, and actually I think all of us on this call, it was fascinating, to A, to watch the global event un- unravel on 24-hour news. But actually one thing that I was fascinated by, and I think people like Consirius were commenting and were on ITV and other places, was the amount of data that we had that showed where ships were stuck, where they were being held, what, you know, I, I can't remember, I think one of the articles I read said, insuring ships is like a black art because we never have any idea what's actually on them or in the, in the containers. It really is a, a, a black art. And I wonder if uh, we're going to change this going forward and working out where it's perishable goods or not. I've got a friend back to small business insurance. I've got a friend in, in the village where I live that was shipping goods from India to the UK and had to pay extra money for them to be held in India because of a delay in uh, the Suez Canal. And I thought, my God, this is a small business, family-run business, bringing goods from India in a small container or part thereof to the UK, now taking on extra cost for his goods that will be sold on marketplaces or elsewhere as a small trader. Imagine if you're a global trade provider with trade insurance to support these things. So It's a really interesting one to watch. It was interesting to see which ones of the folks said, hey, sit still and wait for the blockage to be cleared. And others, I don't know if anyone else noticed, the number of ships that started to go around the Cape and said, we're not going to wait, let's just travel the old way of doing it. And there was no mention of things like piracy or, you know, uh, heavy seas or whatever else. So it was fascinating to watch all the various different scenarios. I wonder now how the marine world and the price of insurance changes as a, as a net result of this. I think that's already been um, started, that uh, revolution, whether Concirus here in the UK, uh, who do track ships around the world, um, but also I think XL Catlin launched something with Parcel. Was it Parcel? It was Parcel. Um, who actually tracking um, its IoT within the containers to know exactly what where, where the state of the goods might well be um, before they even get to destination. You can pretty anticipate whether they're going to be um, uh, still fresh or not. And so I think there's still quite a lot that still needs to be done in terms of actually kind of... Uh, uh, making that technology available and uh, spread across ships. But I think it certainly is already existing 
and just is waiting to be um, delivered. I, I agree. I think Maersk has a, um, I can never get to say that right, either has a huge IoT program. I don't know who in partnership with, but obviously, you know, what, given what they do, and they're the biggest at what they do, why wouldn't they? Well, on that one, I'm going to hand back to you, Sarah, to mend a broken heart. Yes, this is our and finally story for today. So um, this comes from the Insurance Journal and a woman has sued an insurtech over a broken heart. So Natalie Glumpkin, which is the most amazing name, says she knows a bad relationship from personal experience and buying home insurance through the Hip Home app was one of the worst. Glumpkin has sued the insurtech that promised she would be thrilled with a new kind of experience she could have if she started using their services. The insurtech's marketing brochure includes the words, it's time you loved your home insurer and your home Home insurer loved you back, as well as showing a shirtless model. That's interesting. And when Galumpkin downloaded the app to buy home insurance for her bungalow in San Bernardino, she was asked to answer one question and then it was over. The next morning, she received a text confirming the premium had been charged to her credit card and since that, nothing. She said she has a more meaningful relationship with her dry cleaner. When her house was robbed, she downloaded the app again to file a claim and was asked for a photo of the stolen appliances, to which she responded, who takes photos of their appliances? First of all, I think this is in America, hence the suing. Second of all, this sounds like a truly awful experience. I don't think it's necessarily suing them for a broken heart. I think it's just failure to deliver the services they promised. Any any other thoughts on this one? I think this is, a for me, it's kind of the, it's the epitome of the risks of embedded insurance. It's easy to sell a product to make you a really easy way of actually parting with your money and make you believe that you're covered. But your people are not buying an ease of purchase. They're buying a ease of claim. And that's where I think there's too many people have just focused on front end and not enough on the claims experience because that's fundamentally what people are buying. And until, cons- uh, until insurance companies don't fundamentally address it, that lack of trust that consumers have of insurance will remain. And so there's no point dancing around with around handbags and continuing our kind of images of wanting to be engaging with customers and providing kind of all sorts of added value and so on until they fundamentally address the core problem that insurance faces, which is people don't trust them because the claim experience is awful. Magnus, do you have any thoughts on this one? Yeah, I fully, fully support. And I think that's also the challenge you have with the front end focus there where you have a low barrier of entry. Uh, but to the point, it's uh, is that the claims that the moment of truth is there. That is where you deliver on the promise. That is where you step up uh, to really have the customer experience because until then it's just delivering on the front end. And that's why we see kind of the, the increased focus on the back end really have a truly customer focused back end experience uh, to Dylan's point. I think that is the, the winners will have that because that is where the, the customer's of uh, uh, success will be for sure. And Nigel, final words? I'm not sure I got past the shirtless model, if I'm honest, first and foremost. But then their point about who takes photos of their appliances is 100% valid. They could have said, hey, can you have a receipt or proof of purchase, which I think is probably more reasonable. It did remind me of a comedy sketch from uh, 8 out of 10 Cats uh, Does Countdown with Joe Lysett sending a picture of his car back on the moon, it wasn't on the moon, uh, to the local council to get his parking ticket refunded. Um, so that was done in a very fun and interesting way. I don't think this is an issue with embedded insurance, though, and I think that's inevitable. I think this is an issue more with the fact there's no engagement in insurance for the nine out of 10 people that don't, don't claim. So it's working out how we fix engagement and the operating model, not just the front end piece. As you said, I agree with you, that is easy. 
embedded insurance is going to be here to stay because it's going to be back to hip home. You know, do the things that you love and, and, and be loved back. I think it's really important. It'll be interesting to see how this evolves and who wins, I think. Yeah, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying anything against embedded insurance. All I'm saying it is a big risk because often the people who are distributing don't understand insurance in enough detail to know what good and bad looks like. And so they will kind of easily embed an insurance product that is going to be a poor quality. And because so few people do claim, as you highlight, then effectively it's going to be a, a, a small segment of their client base that's going to be uh, affected. But over time, it will play it back against them. And I think that's what that, that's the only kind of risk that I'm highlighting is that there's a kind of a it, it's really the importance of making sure that it's the holistic insurance experience that is being thought through and not just the front end. I think I think fundamentally we, we can all agree that you kind of have to do what you say you're going to do <laughs> and not make false promises, shirtless models or otherwise. All right, we're going to leave it there for this time. Uh, but where can our listeners find out more about you? Dylan, uh, people want to find out more about you or social, where should they go? We are social. That's our website. That is our handle, uh, Twitter, Facebook, even TikTok. So, uh, yeah, all social media and uh, and website LinkedIn. Oh, brilliant. Okay. We haven't had a TikTok before, so that's a first. Magnus, how about you and Uptech? You can always connect to me on LinkedIn or, or visit our social channels uh, and the website uptech.com. And Nigel, how about you? You will be pleased to know I am not on TikTok, uh, but you will find me on Twitter at Nigel Walsh. Brilliant. And you can find me on Twitter at Sarah Kachansky. Thank you so much to all of my guests today. And thank you so much for listening. If you like what you've heard, do subscribe to the podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It helps to make it better and it helps others to find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, find us on social media. You can just search for 11FS or InsureTech Insider. And you can find us on Twitter at InstechInsiders or email podcasts at 11FS.com. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.